We find ourselves uh, just a couple days before Christmas, and uh, we wanted to dedicate uh, this time to uh, focus a little bit on the Christmas season. We've been very much involved in our series, Upside Down Kingdom, and uh, focusing in on the Sermon on the Mount. But we're going to take three weeks off uh, during this holiday time uh, to just have uh, some ser- uh, sermons just focused in on Christmas and, and the New Year's. and. Um, and as we do that, uh, I would ask that you would grab your Bibles and open up to the book of uh, Matthew this morning. I, I started with uh, Matthew because I figured you guys know where the book of Matthew is. We've been there for some time now. And we're going to be looking at Matthew uh, chapter uh, 1. As uh, Stephanie uh, reminded you, I just encourage you to uh, invite someone to come to our Christmas Eve services. Uh, we have two identical services, 4 and 6 o'clock. And I'll be sharing from the Gospel of Luke and talking about God's Christmas card uh, to us. And so make sure you're a part of that. It's an hour service, and uh, we know you've got a lot of other things going on. But what a great opportunity for you to worship and praise the coming King, our Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. Well, Matthew chapter 1, we're going to find ourselves in. We're going to address a passage of Scripture. As a pastor now, uh, for almost 10 years here at the church, I've, I've preached my... Uh, uh, share of Christmas services. I think every part of the Christmas story, whether it's Mary, Joseph, the innkeeper, the wise men, the shepherd, I think I've addressed them all. And one of the hard things around Christmas is addressing some of these similar passages over and over again. And, and here's the thing, you learn something new each and every time. And, and one of the passages that I've, maybe by habit or, or because I've just missed it, is the genealogy passage in the book of Matthew. You see, a lot of us look at that genealogy and right away we skip over it to get to the good stuff. We want to uh, uh, see more of the narrative. And yet, uh, what I hope you see today is that the genealogy is all about Christmas. It reminds us of the absolute planning and preparation uh, that God has had going on for centuries, for millennia, uh, to prepare for the coming of His Son, Jesus Christ, in Bethlehem. But as you know, I sometimes uh, butcher words and a genealogy for me as one who uh, doesn't have the best of vocabularies. It's kind of difficult. And maybe that's why we skip over as we don't even know how to, how to pronounce some of these names. And uh, I have asked my friend Dave Welch to help me out uh, for the reading of God's Word. He says he can pronounce all of them. And uh, so I'm going to ask him to do so. So I'm going to ask for you to stand for the reading of God's Word, but we're going to do something a little different. As you follow along in Matthew chapter 1 in your pew Bibles, that is page uh, uh, 807. If you don't have a Bible, I want you to grab that Bible. And I want you to open up to it. And Dave is going to lead us in song, uh, the genealogy of Matthew. So follow along as he sings and does the reading for us this morning. Go ahead, Dave. All right. Matthew chapter 1. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac he had Jacob, Jacob he had Judah and his kin. Then Perez and Zerah came from Judah's woman Tamar. Perez he brought Hezron up and then came Aram and Aminadab and Nashon who was then the dad of Salmon who with Rahab fathered Boaz. Rushi married Boaz who had Obed who had Jesse. Jesse he had David who we know as king. 
David, he had Solomon by dead Uriah's wife. Solomon, well, you all know him. He had good old Rehoboam, followed by Abijah, who had Asa. Asa had Jehoshaphat, had Joram, had Uzziah, who had Jotham, and Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Followed by Manasseh, who had Eben, who was a man, who was father of a good boy named Josiah, who grandfathered Jehoiakim, who caused the Babylonian captivity, because he was a liar. Then he had Shealtiel, who begat Zerubbabel, who had Abiad, who had Eliakim. Like him had Ezer, who had Nathan, who had Jacob, was the father of Eliah. Then you try it. He had Eliezer, who had Nathan, who had Jacob. Now listen very closely, I don't want to sing this twice. Jacob was the father of Joseph, husband of Mary. Mother of Christ. <laughs> Remain standing as I uh, take us to a time of prayer. Father God, we come before you, Lord, and we are thankful that every single word in your scriptures is good, it is right, it is perfect, it is trustworthy, and it's absolutely needed for us in our lives of godliness and holiness. Lord, I thank you for musicians who take your word and, and uh, help us to uh, understand it and see it in, in new ways. I thank you for my brother Dave and, and his giftedness, Lord, in, in sharing that with us. But now, Lord, as we come before you, Lord, I pray that we'd be challenged to look at Christmas uh, in a new way, to see your plans and your sovereignty in, in the big things and in the small things through good people and through evil people, Lord, that you had Christmas on your mind long before uh, we ever did, and we're thankful for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, we're only a couple days away, two days away from Christmas. In the Bedall house, we are nowhere near ready. Nowhere. Some of you know Amanda and I, uh, a couple months ago, uh, began a project to uh, add a, a great room onto the back of our home. And uh, these last two months have been an absolute whirlwind of contractors and, and all of that. And, and, uh, and we are, we're not ready yet. But here's the thing. We uh, made the goal of Christmas uh, being our inaugural um, time in the, the new family room, and uh, we've got carpet coming tomorrow, God, God help us, uh, to be in, and, uh, and it's been crazy, and, and we just have gotten to the point now that we're starting to think Christmas and preparing for Christmas, and we've heard the music, and we know that things are going on, and, uh, and it just has not been um, a, a very uh, quiet Christmas for us. And yet, many of you find yourselves in a flurry of activities, preparing. Some of you are baking. Others of you are shopping. So others of you are getting ready for festivities. You are, you are busy in a flurry of activities trying to get ready uh, to celebrate Christmas. Some of you started months ago. I was talking with a woman yesterday who told me that she started her Christmas shopping in July. Uh, I need to call her next July and make sure she covers me because I haven't done any Christmas shopping. And, uh, and yet we recognize 
recognize that our hope is in the preparation of all that we do, that the celebration will be worth it. I've been telling myself with some long hours uh, doing uh, some things around the room that I'm doing this so that when I come down on Christmas morning, I'll have a room, a brand new room that I'll be able to enjoy with my family and all that, and it'll be worth it. It'll all be worth it. All the hard work and all the time and energy, it will be worth it. And some of us are asking that question right now, is it worth it? Is all of the hoopla, all of the stuff really worth it? All the preparation that we're doing. Well, long before you were preparing for Christmas, long before Mary and Joseph and the wise men and and the shepherds and, and Gabriel the angel and the innkeeper and all those people, before they ever entered the stage, and and celebrated that first Christmas. There was someone preparing long before all of them. You see, Christmas was on the mind and in the heart of God long before humanity even was around. The Bible tells us that God had his plans long before we would ever come into the picture. Galatians 4, 4, the Apostle Paul gives us this beautiful picture of what Christmas was like in the mind of God. In Galatians 4, 4, God says that at just the right time, in fact, in the fullness of time, God sent his son to be born of a woman who was under the law, that he might redeem those under the law. And it was done at just the right time. You see, that picture that Paul gives of the fullness of time is an hourglass. And what Paul is speaking of is is the hourglass where God in his uh, time before time existed, if you will, thought in his heart that Christmas was something that he wanted to bring to humanity even before he had created them. And what he began to do is as he began to plan all of the circumstances around this incredible celebration of Christmas, we see God flip the hourglass. And with every particle of sand is time. Now you and I may think that it's been a long time, but God in just the right time, in just the right way, has allowed that sand to fall into that lower part of the hourglass at just the right moment. And when that final particle of sand came, according to Galatians 4.4, that last piece of sand, one that we couldn't even see from the human eye and its perspective, when that last sand went from the top of the hourglass to the bottom, the Bible says that God sent his son Jesus to be born in a manger. But there was a lot of planning, a lot of preparation. There were a lot of things that came about long before the nativity story became a reality. And where we see that most, most clearly this morning is in what we've just heard sang to us, and that is the genealogy. You see, we quickly push away this passage of Scripture because it's just a list of names. But I want you to know that based on what Paul tells us, each of those names is a particle in that hourglass It's a particle of sand and it's significant and it's meaningful and there's a story behind every one of those things. And in the genealogy we will see a couple things that we need to remember about Christmas. And I want to share them this morning and I don't want to take a lot of time in doing so but I want to share with you and hopefully you can walk away with some new truths of a very obscure passage of Scripture. The first thing that we see in Matthew's genealogy in the opening of the book of the New Testament. And think about this. No editor would ever want to start a book like this. 
And yet the bestseller, its second division of the book starts, the whole New Testament starts with this genealogy. God saw it as very important. And what he begins to tell us is is that it is so critical to the Christmas story because the first thing it does is it shows us the requirement of the Savior. Christmas is all about the Savior. And when we understand who the Savior is and we understand how he could be the Savior, the genealogy helps us with that. Notice in verse 1, the book, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now notice the first description that is given is that Jesus Christ is the son of David and he's the son of Abraham. Now those are significant. You need to understand that Matthew is writing to a Jewish population. And the Jews had been waiting. The prophets had been talking about this Jesus. Well, they were talking about this Messiah who was going to come. This promised one who is going to redeem the people, who is going to bring peace and prosperity to the nation of Israel. But nobody knew who it was. And Matthew's job was to convince the Jewish people that it truly was Jesus. And the genealogy is his first way of explaining to a Jewish population that the one you've been waiting for has found its fulfillment in Jesus. And notice how he does it. He says, first of all, he's the son of Abraham. What Matthew is saying there is Jesus is racially qualified to be king. He is racially qualified to be king. Now, when we hear the word Abraham, our, our, our minds go back to Father Abraham. Genesis chapter 12. And in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we see a man named Abram who would become Abraham. And Abram is hanging out in northern Iraq. And he's hanging out with his people, the Chaldean people, where I and my family finds its ancestry as well. And he's just living life. He's doing his own thing. Everything is seemingly going well for Abram. But God visits Abraham. And he calls out to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to leave all that you know, all that you've been a part of, and I want you to leave what is familiar to go to a place that I'm promising you. And God would covenant with Abraham, and he would say, Abraham, out of you, one man whom I have called out of your homeland into a new land, I am calling you to be the father of a great nation. That your descendants will outnumber the stars in the sky. And I'm going to make this covenant with you, Abraham. Abraham, the covenant I make with you is that you, as a faithful follower of mine, As you leave the place that you call home to a new land, I will give you that land and I will give it to your descendants and it will hinge upon one who is going to come who will be one of your own. And we know 2,000 years later, 2,000 years later, that's a lot of particles of sand if you don't know it. In that celestial hourglass, as that sand fell, Jesus would come, a son of Abraham, And he would be the one who would bring the peace and the prosperity and all of the wonderful privileges of being in covenant with God. Jesus would come, a son of Abraham. Now notice, he says he's the son of David. And David we know as king, the greatest king of all of Israel's history. And there's been a lot of them. And yet David is the one who was called a man after God's own heart. And though at times he did very well at obeying God, and other times, and we'll learn about later, he didn't do such a great job of obeying, we see that God makes another covenant with David. 
And David, we learn that because Jesus is the son of David, that not only is Jesus racially, he is a Jew by both his mom and dad's sides of the family. He's 100% Jewish, so he is totally in right as a Jewish descendant of Abraham to take the role that his forefather had in being uh, the father of a great nation. He was racially qualified. Notice he was also royally qualified because he was the son of David, both on his mother and father's side. And there are, if you will, um, two uh, genealogies in the gospel. One that focuses on Joseph's lineage, which is Matthew, and the other one that focuses in on Mary's lineage. And both of them, Mary and Joseph, find their connection to Abraham, and they also find their connection with David. Joseph, he finds his connection through Solomon the king, the son of David, whereas uh, Mary's family finds their connection with another son of David's, Nathan's. And that's the difference. Some of you always wonder the difference between the two genealogies. That's where the genealogies have a difference. So they were a part of the same family. They were just cousins, if you will, distant, distant cousins as the 14 generations, if you will, uh, came to pass. Now, as King David David is told by God in a covenant that his throne will remain forever established. We sang about it in one of the songs that we sang today, that David's throne will be forever. And that the one who is going to come, the promised one, would be the king. He would sit on that throne for all generations and all of eternity. And he would sit on David's throne. Now, right away, David is asking the question, is it my son Solomon? And while Solomon was a great and wise king, it wasn't him. Would it be one of the following kings? No, it would be another thousand years before Jesus would come and take his rightful place as the heir on David's throne. He is the son of Abraham, and he's the son of David. He is royally qualified, he is racially qualified, and totally outside of the scripture, but so very important to us, and might I add, he's religiously qualified. He's religiously qualified because this Jesus, who is the son of Abraham, he's a Jew of Jews, and he is also in the royal line of David, an heir to the throne. Jesus was all that was required by God to be the one who would take away the sins of many. You see, Jesus lived a perfect life, 33 years of perfection, following the will of God and not the will of man. And in pursuing God and his obedience, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And in doing so, out of obedience, he was the price that would save us from our sins. He was the one who could do what you and I could not do on our own. Jesus, in the story of Christmas, is about one who came who was absolutely qualified to take care of the world's greatest need. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior. Now, as we go through, we see in the genealogy that it moves from Jesus to people. And it, and, and it becomes a part of a great biography. And there's uh, dozens of names here that are listed. And these names each have a story. And if I was to invest all the time that I have, we would not be out of here until uh, you know, late into the evening to address each of these. But within each of these names is a great biography. Some good, some bad. Some stories of great uh, and wonderful accolades, still others of them, great disappointment. Men and women of faith and men and women of great uh, sin and debauchery. 
And so what I want to do is I want you to notice that there are some reasons that Christmas is here. Why in the world would God send his son? Why would God plan with great precision and with great sovereignty the the particles of sand that we see in each one of these lives and names? Why would he bring them about? And the reason is, is that Christmas is about a savior who came to save sinners. And that is seen most clearly in the four women that are mentioned in the genealogy. A lot of men are mentioned, but there are four women. And I want to look at the four women. And I want you to see in the lives of each of these women a reason why Jesus might have come to be the Savior of us. The first one that comes, notice in our text, in verse 3, we have Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. And Tamar, we see, is that we are reminded as we see her name that we are all sinners. We are all sinners. In Genesis 38, you have one of the weirdest storylines. No soap opera can touch what is going on in Genesis 38. And Tamar is in the middle of it. So let me help you out with this. Tamar is a woman who is married to the son of Judah, a Canaanite uh, a man. And we are told that this woman, I'm sorry, uh, Tamar is a Canaanite woman. Judah is an Israelite man. And Judah has a son. His son is not named in this uh, genealogy because he's not a part of the storyline. But Tamar's husband is, is killed. He dies, and he dies because he's a wicked man, the scripture tells us in Genesis 38. And that leaves Tamar without a husband. Well, before Judah's son, Tamar's husband, uh, before he passes away, no child is given. And so Tamar finds herself as a childless widow. And according to the Mosaic law, the job then was for the brother... Uh, of uh, the brother-in-law of Tamar's to give to her uh, sister-in-law a child, a boy baby that would enable the brother's name to continue on. Her brother-in-law's name was Onan. And Onan, in this incredibly awkward scenario, some of you are really glad you lived during the time of grace, ladies, aren't you? You look at your brother-in-law and say, no way, Jose, okay? (laughs) And yet... Onan has the responsibility to conceive in his sister-in-law a child. And here's the thing. I'm not going to get real big into this, but Onan enjoys the activity more than the responsibility. And so what does he do? He tries to stop the hand of God by not conceiving in his sister-in-law a child. God becomes angry and strikes Onan dead. Tamar now is twice a widow and twice now a childless one. Tamar then does the unthinkable. Tamar, in Genesis 38, it tells us that she disguises herself as a prostitute. And she hangs out on a a street where she knows that her father-in-law, Judah, might be walking by. Judah, a man who's already married, who should have no involvement with a prostitute, sees uh, who he thinks to be only a prostitute, but it's his daughter-in-law. Sleeps with her. And conceives in her two children, twins, Zerah and Perez. Now you'd say right away, Tim, this is absolutely and positively the worst Christmas sermon I've ever heard in all my life. So why in the world would God bring... Some of you are sitting there going, can you bring some angels and some shepherds in already? 
Why? But you, if you've heard me preach, you know this is where we go all the time, okay? Why in the world would God put this in there? He could have written about anybody. But why in the world does he do, do this? Because he wants to remind us as the scriptures open the New Testament, as the Christmas story is unveiled, that Christmas is here because we're all sinners. We're all absolutely and positively worthless human beings because we are far away from God. And Tamar is a remembrance, and it's a reality check that right when we think when we come to Christmas that we're doing pretty well, everything's going great for us, Tamar reminds us that God came at Christmas to become one of us to redeem those who are under the law of sin. Now notice the second one. The second one is in the passage as well. So we have Tamar who reminds us of all that we are all sinners. But notice next, we have Rahab. It doesn't get much better. And Rahab in the text, it tells us in verse 5, is, uh, the, fa- is the daughter uh, of, uh, of Boaz. And, uh, and we see here that Rahab uh, is, uh, um, is one who's a prostitute. John- Joshua tells us that uh, Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho. Now Jericho is the first city that the Israelites need to conquer to take their promised land. And so Joshua, the great king, he goes and he sends two spies into the city of Jericho, a walled city, a formidable city that needs to be taken. How are we going to take it? Any good general will do some reconnaissance. And Joshua sends these two spies in. And they find themselves almost compromised. The scripture tells us that they're almost found out because the men of Jericho learn of what the Israelites are going to do. And they know there are spies in their city. And they go on an all-out search looking for these two spies. And they come to Rahab's house. And the spies are there in the house with Rahab. And Rahab has a come-to-Jesus, if you will, moment. She either says to her people, the military of her city, that the spies are here. Or she stays quiet. Now, why in the world would a woman in an enemy city harbor spies from a neighboring group of people whose job is to take over the city? The Bible makes it clear that Rahab starts to hear of the accolades of the children of Israel, and more especially their God. And how their God had blessed them. And how their God had protected them. And how their God was a God who is greater than any God that he had ever known. And she stays quiet to the governing authorities, and she hides the spies, and in doing so, saves their lives. The spies tell them, we are going to uh, honor your willingness to hide us, your faith in in God, by telling you that we're going to destroy the city. And when we come to destroy the city, we want to spare you. And what we're going to ask you to do is we're going to ask you to hang a scarlet thread a rope of some sort, a cloth of some sort, out of your window. And that will signify your faith in our God. And just as in a generation before that, that the children of Israel were to put a blood on each of the doorposts from a a lamb of their flock, so that the angel of death would pass over this scarlet thread of redemption, a sign of faith in God's provision, would be that which would spare you, Rahab, and your family. And we know the story that the walls came down and Rahab was saved. What do we learn from that story? We learn that Rahab, through Rahab, that sinners come to God by faith. And what Christmas reminds us of is it reminds us that the Christmas story is one that must be received by faith alone. Salvation cannot come 
unless we by faith take God at his word. And some of us have become so desensitized to the story of Christmas that it no longer is a faith-filled story, but one that simply is one that entertains us. It is one that is good to read to the kids. Brothers and sisters, we celebrate Christmas not as a good bedtime story, but the story that saves us from our sin. And we believe it by faith. And we take it because we know, just as it did with Rahab, that faith is what pleases God. And so we do so with our hearts filled with joy to believe as Christ, as God said Christ would come and that he did just as the scriptures say that he did. Now notice, he goes on and he names another woman and that's the woman of Ruth. And here's another wonderful story. And Ruth is a story of Ruth who's a woman who lives in the, in the land of Moab. And Ruth m- meets an Israelite man who has come with his family to leave the famine in Canaan and goes to Moab, a place filled with all types of sin and all types of debauchery and all types of pagan worship. And Ruth meets her husband and she grows into this wonderful relationship with her mother-in-law. Christmas is about mother-in-laws. Don't ever forget that. Some of you saw my mother-in-law was here dropping off some cookies and and, uh, and they said they saw Tim move like he's never moved before because his mother-in-law's in the house. You've got to take care of mother-in-laws. And yet, what we see is, is in Moab, during this time of great famine, Ruth's husband dies. Not only does Ruth's husband die, but Ruth's father-in-law dies at, this, at a similar time. Not only does Ruth's father-in-law and husband die, but her brother-in-law dies as well. And so that leaves Ruth's sister-in-law, Orpah, who's from Moab, Ruth, and Naomi, who is from Canaan. Naomi says, I'm, I'm leaving town. This is not my land. We were only here for a season. We're gonna head, I'm going to head back to uh, my land with my people to worship my God. And Orpah says, you know what? You know what? I, I've got connections here. My, my family's here. I like the gods who we worship and serve. And, and I like it. It's comfortable here. But Ruth does the unthinkable. She could have gone back to her family, which would have been the, the proper channel for her. But she goes with her mother-in-law. And she says to her mother-in-law, your God will be my God. And your people will be my people. And, and I am going to be a part of, of what you are doing, what your God is doing. I'm going to go back there. Even though there's nothing for me there. I am going to go, and I am going to stick by your side. And they head back to Canaan. You know the story. They happen upon a field. They need food, and they start to winnow some of the wheat from a field. They don't even know who owns the field, but it was a part of the Jewish tradition and a part of the Mosaic law that orphans and widows and those in poverty could take from a field as they had need. And so they do that. That was the welfare system at the time. And they do so, and they happen upon, the Bible says, happen, just happen. Don't you notice that a lot of things that happen we think are consequence or uh, coincidence? But they are all a part of God's sovereignty because they happen upon a, a field by, uh, owned by a man named Boaz. Boaz is a right man, a righteous man. He is an older man, and he takes pity on this young woman and her mother-in-law. And he says, I want you to glean as much as you need. Take whatever you need, and I want you to, to have it. And he creates this relationship with Ruth, a relationship that turns into a marriage relationship, a covenant relationship. And here's what I want you to know. I want you to add something uh, to Ruth's story. Salvation, first of all, is by grace. 
Ruth didn't have it coming to her. You see, Christmas reminds us that it's not be, Jesus didn't come because we were something worthwhile, but that God placed his affection on us just as Boaz placed his affection on Ruth. And notice, just as in the story of Rahab, that this is uh, Ruth's story is a reminder that the gospel is not just for the Israelites, but for all people. Christmas is not just for the Jewish people. It is for all tribes, all tongues, all nations. The Bible, I'm sorry, the Christmas song, Joy to the World, it repeats that over and over again. Joy to the world, not just to one nation, to the world. The earth, the entire planet, all humanity has received her king. Salvation is by grace. And it is for all people. One final one is the story of Bathsheba. Notice in the text... In verse 6, we are told that David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. She's not even mentioned by name, but we know who she's talking about. And when he, Matthew mentions that, he man, mentions one of the most scandalous times in all of Israel's history. Where the king, a man after God's own heart, David, takes a woman that is not his own, Uriah the Hittite, a man in the army of Israel, who is busy at war. While he is at war doing his duty, the king, the man who follows after God, sins grievously, takes a wife that is not his own, sleeps with her, and the adulterous relationship that goes on. And what we see in that story is that no matter how much we sin, no matter how scandalous our lives may be, listen to me, our salvation is firmly established. This is the joy of Christmas. The joy of Christmas is he that began a good work in us is faithful to see it to completion. Why in the world would God put these people in his family tree? The answer is he's a God of all grace. And he's a God that wants to remind us this Christmas to the people of Village Bible Church that no matter where you find yourself, no matter how far you may be from God, God says Christmas is the time where he brings back some of the greatest trophies of sin to make them trophies of his grace. And so resonate on these things. Think about these things. Each of these were a part of God's plan for that first Christmas. Now what in the world are we to then take from this? This list of names. Notice my final point this morning is that we have a responsibility. In light of God's preparation for Christmas, all the preparing that he's done, there would be nothing worse than after all the preparation that you've done in your home, waiting for your family to come, that your family would call and say, you know what, we're just not going to make it. You know, that we found a better offer. We, we, we found something that, that works better for us. We're not going to come. There would be nothing worse than all that preparation be done and nobody to enjoy the blessings of it. Nobody to enjoy the benefits of all the preparation that took place. And so when God lists all of these names in Matthew's genealogy, he's expecting something of us. He's requiring something of those who are going to be his followers. And so there are three questions that, that I believe the genealogy is asking us this morning. And number one is the question, what is your spiritual lineage? What is your spiritual lineage? So many of us are so eager to find on Ancestry.com who our great, great, great grandparents are, where they were, how they came to this new world and all of that. We want to know how we were connected to the Mayflower and all those great things. But have you ever stopped to ask the question what your spiritual lineage is? 
Have you ever stopped, and Christmas is a great time to do it, to ask the question, am I a part of God's family tree? John 1, uh, John chapter 1, uh, in another gospel says, to those who believed on his name, that God gave the right to become children of God. Can you call yourself that this morning? Have you by faith and through God's grace bowed the knee to Jesus and given your life to him that you can say, I'm a part of God's family tree? I once was alienated because of my sin. I was once uh, hostile towards God, but God, because he showered his grace and his love and his mercy on me, I have bowed the knee to Jesus. And by faith, I've accepted him as my savior. If you've never done that this morning, then Christmas is the time to do that. That's what Christmas is all about. The greatest gift being given in the name Jesus so that we might be saved from our sins. But there's a second question with regards to that lineage. Within each of these, there's a person that comes after another. It starts with Abraham, and then it goes to Isaac, and Isaac to Jacob. And some of you have bowed the knee to Jesus, and you've accepted Christ as your Savior. But the question I have for you this morning is, what are you leaving behind? And some of you are more worried about leaving an inheritance behind. And that's, that's good, and that's important, and that's right. A good man, a godly man, a wise man, leaves something uh, back for future generations. But even greater than that is the spiritual lineage that you leave your family and your children, and your grandchildren. I love this about my life. I am not something that, that came out of nowhere. But my spiritual lineage began, listen to me, this is amazing. It happened in the same land where God started a great nation. My great-grandmother lived in northern Iraq. And we don't know how she came to know Christ. Northern Iraq, not a lot of Christians there, especially a hundred or so years ago. But she came to know Jesus and had a profound relationship with Jesus. And she prayed and she read the scriptures. And in a little village called Ermia, northern Iraq, she would bow the knee to Jesus. And it was not good enough for her just to know about Jesus. But she shared Jesus with her family. And my grandmother would learn from infancy about the Holy Scriptures and how it makes you wise into salvation. And then my grandmother in Baghdad would teach her children, her three children, Leonard and Esther and, and Bill, about Jesus. And they would learn, not in America, where there's a church on every street, but in Baghdad. My dad, from a young man, would learn about Jesus. He would come to this country and what would, a lot of things would change in my dad's lives. A ton of things would change, but one thing would not, and that's his relationship with Jesus. And so that begs the question for me, if God saw fit to grace my family hundreds of years ago with the gospel of Jesus Christ, then how much more important is it that I live a life and a legacy for those who come after me? You see, it doesn't matter if you start the spiritual lineage. The real question is, I pray you're not the end. And some of us right now, this Christmas, have become so blinded by the things of this world that Christmas has become a whole lot of stuff with a little Jesus on the top. That works with whipped cream. It doesn't work with Jesus. Christmas is about Christ. And he's about Christ and, his, and, and, and the place he plays in our lives. 
And some of us as parents need to be real careful that we are not presenting something else. That Santa isn't getting all of the accolades. In the Badal house, we say there are many characters who are a part of the Christmas story, but Jesus is the MVP. He's it. He's the ball game. Now notice, there's a second thing that I want you to think about this Christmas, and that is not only what your spiritual lineage is, but who is your Lord. Notice in the first verse of the genealogy, it says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you, this is going to be a profound epiphany. Christ is not the last name of Jesus. Okay? Christ is his title. That's why any time any of uh, people around me use the name of Jesus in vain, Jesus Christ, they will say, and I will say, he is Lord. <laughs> you will really throw some people off. You do that. Uh, one other one I've heard, I love, praise be his holy name. That really ruins a good curse line, doesn't it? <laughs> and what you see is the title of Jesus is that he is Lord. He is King. He is the one who sits above every throne. This Jesus. Now, I want you to notice something. We do not celebrate Jesus Mas. You following that? We celebrate Christ Mas. The coming of our King, who is Jesus. And when we come to Christmas, it is a reminder for every child of God to ask the question, Who is my King? Who is my Lord? And before we do an inventory of the gifts that are under the tree, we need to do an inventory of our life and ask the question, is Jesus my King? Is he my Lord? And we need to do some evaluating. And this is why I love that Christmas comes at the end of a year and it begins a new year because it is a great opportunity for us to ask, is he, is he Lord of my time? Is he Lord of my finances? Is he Lord of my hobbies and my pursuits? Is he Lord over what gets me up in the morning? Is he Lord of my marriage? Is he Lord over my parenting? Is he Lord over my evangelism? Is he Lord over my pursuits and my desires? Is he Lord? And the Bible makes it clear over and over again that we cannot serve two masters. And so if you find yourself giving a little to the world and are giving to yourself and a little to God, the Bible says you'll hate one and love the other. And so Christmas is about us lifting high the name of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Notice finally it then begs the question, how then will we live our life? How will we live our life? Understand this, God went to great lengths to bring about the Christmas story. Far more than the baking that you did and the shopping that you did, God before creation was even in process, God had a plan. And that plan would never be thwarted. Even the devil and all of his attempts would try to thwart the plans of God. And here's the thing, with every sin and every devious activity, whether by the devil or a demon or by a sinner or by you and me, God took even our unrighteousness and disobedience and used it for his glory. And so we need to recognize that and understand that if God has gone to such lengths to see his sovereign rule in the lives of people so that his plan that on the day 
that Christmas morning that there would be a child in the manger, that everything was just perfect, that the hourglass had finally settled and Jesus was in the manger, God could say it was all good. Now the question is, what lengths will we go to be a part of that Christmas story? How far will we go? What are we willing to do? What lengths are we willing to give up of our own personal prerogatives and priorities and place them under the will of God? Jesus left heaven. We can't fathom what Jesus left. All of the glory and honor that is his. He left everything, all the, the riches of glory to become one of us. And as followers of Jesus Christ this Christmas, let me ask you the question, at what lengths are you willing to sacrifice for Jesus? What what are you willing to do? What are you willing to give up? What are you willing to be a part of for Christ and his kingdom this Christmas? Let us be a people who see the story of Christmas not as this clean and tidy little story that makes our children warm with wonder, but let us look even farther back and see God's sovereignty and grace. And let us ask what our part may be. What are we responsible for? And when God reveals that, and he will, we live it with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Merry Christmas to you all, and God bless you. Let me close in a word of prayer. Father God, Lord, I pray that there's been some truth that, that has enlightened our hearts this morning from an obscure passage, Lord, that we would recognize that Christmas is all about you. It's all about you. And that's why the devil in this world want nothing of you to be a part of it. Because it reflects you and your greatness and your power and your splendor and your majesty and your glory. Lord, you are so incredibly glorious to us and gracious to us. We are thankful for it. So Lord, let us not move an inch away from that theme as we celebrate with our families and with our friends. Let us not forget that even in these man-made traditions and and things that we've added to the season, as noble as they may be, that no one would take center stage but Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the one who came to save sinners. Remind us of these truths, these truths that were in the hearts of the shepherds, these truths that were in the heart of seeking wise men, these truths that were in the heart of even Joseph and even the mother Mary, who was a sinner and in need of a Savior, as she, in her own words, articulates in Luke chapter 1. We need you, Jesus. And we are glad, we are thankful, we are filled with joy that you would see fit, even in our sin, to save us and make a people unto yourself. The greatest gift, Lord, you've ever given us was your son, Jesus. Now, Lord, let us live in light of that. Let us change our lives and reorganize our lives so that Christmas may be lived out each and every day from this day forward. Now send us forth, Lord. Keep us safe. Lord, give us wonderful times with our family around this theme. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.